Jillian Bethwally. Patrick Hines. Girl, we've had, both of us have had shit weeks. And it's only Wednesday. It's Wednesday. You know what, though? It's not sweltering hot out. That's true. That's a win for me. What are we talking about today, girl? We are talking about Captivated, The Trials of Pamela Smart. Listen, I remember the shit out of this situation. Yeah, so you, can we dive into that real quick? That yeah, you... just like quickly, I grew up in the air. Well, several things happening at once. Okay. I grew up in the area. So it, this happened in New Hampshire. I grew up on Cape Cod, but like New England's a small place. You grew up on Cape Cod? I did. All right, fancy. But I remember the trial when it was happening. And I guess when I, like my little gay brain was like, you're going to like true crime. But also <laughs> when they made the movies, the first one was the Helen Hunt the one. The Helen Hunt Who I loved Helen Hunt and Chad Allen. Don't get me started about Chad Allen. You know, he's gay now. Well, always. Always. He was always gay, but he <laughs> came out like 100 years ago. The Inquirer like totally outed Chad The Inquirer. Allen. Well, then it must be true. <laughs> no, he's totally no, out. I know, I know. Out loud and proud. Anyway, I loved, loved, I was going to say I loved this story. <laughs> well, well, you were captivated by it. Yeah. Anyway, I was obs- I was kind of obsessed with it. Pam Smart. Pam Smart. Pam Smart. Well, this was the first televised, they say, gavel right. to gavel. This is pre-OJ, you guys. Mm-hmm. We sort of live in a world where, for some reason, the OJ thing has taken over as, like, the first everyone was glued to their televisions. No. No, right. Totally. Pam Smart. Like, this was the first. You know, she was pretty, a little too pretty. Here we are again. <laughs> There's someone... I don't know. A girl is hysterical in here. She just ran over her husband. Is passed out. Is passed out? You know what? He's passed out, that man. Yeah, he's on the way. Do you know that? He's passed out. No, we don't know. May 1st, 1990. 24-year-old Gregory Smart has been shot in the head. His wife, Pamela Smart, is accused of plotting her husband's death. You got anything to say this morning? Are you involved in this murder? She plotted the murder of her husband along with three teenage boys. All along, she has said she would welcome the start of her trial so she could prove her innocence. Well, Pamela Smart is about to get her wish. This is going to be the first trial ever covered live on television. No one had ever seen a television show where you watched real life play out in real time. There's no soap opera to this. It's real stuff. Nothing happens, and it's totally fascinating. Litigation as entertainment was just exploding, and it exploded through this trial. From Boston, from New Hampshire, from all over New England, and then it's national news. In fact, around the world is is trying to cover this story. It is gigantic. All of New Hampshire, if not the nation, is inflamed at the appearance of Pamela Smart. So, light back on. Let's talk about what the crime is. Let's talk about why she's on trial and why this was such a thing. Basically, what happened was on May 1st, 1990, uh, Greg Smart, her husband, was shot dead. And that's the crime. Now, it was perpetrated by three boys. Mm -hmm. Um, They are described later, but we can do that now. Let's do it now. (laughs) And these boys are rough. Pete Randall. He was tough looking. You could tell this kid is me just by looking at him. He had a hateful look in his eyes all the time. Let's just say this is a perfect example. Everyone was described and judged based on the way they looked. Totally. Whether it was the boys or a pretty blonde. That's totally true. Everyone in this documentary is described by the way Mm -hmm, they look mm -hmm. incessantly, which is just like, this is what the case turned out to be. Yeah. And he, Patrick Randall, allegedly held down Greg Smart. That's that's how they describe him as well. Number two... 
Then you've got Vance Latimy. Yeah, he drove the car. He had thick Coke bottle glasses and frizzy hair. To which I said, were they? Not, are they describing the high school Patrick Hines? <laughs> did you drive a getaway car? No, but I did have Coke bottle glasses and frizzy hair. Really? Yep, Pixar totally. didn't happen. That's what they say on the internet, right? <laughs> And then you got Billy Flynn. William Billy Flynn uh, is allegedly. They him as. Uh, he is good looking with puppy dog eyes. He's a rock musician just like Greg. And then it cuts to a picture and you're like, oh, that's what counts for good looking in Seabrook. In 1990? <laughs> to the residents of Seabrook, New Hampshire, <laughs> your town gets a smearin in this one. Seriously. A Helen smearin. Yeah, they, they were just like. <laughs> they- Three Seabrook teenagers from a ramshackle working class neighborhood in a place called Seabrook. And it is a very, very poor neighborhood. So in the aftermath of this shooting, we meet Pam Smart. Mm-hmm. Um, contrary to like the Amanda Knox thing, apparently you do get hair and makeup in jail. Like Apparently. She comes in with her hair fully curled and she, her hair is like bleach blonde, clear. She's got like a stylist in jail. Yeah. And the thing is, when you're in, in prison for that long, you do sort of stay in the mm-hmm, year that mm-hmm. you you went away. Yeah. So true. I think it's very easy to like the world changes around you and you're in there and it's like, well, th- that's the hairdo she knows. It sounds it sounds crazy and superficial and like I'm being petty about it, but yeah. it's really not like that's what she remembers. But honestly, like, she, she has to get like hair. Pro- I want to know how she it does. Happens. Yeah, yeah. So we're seeing flashbacks to the aftermath of the murder, right? And we're seeing how like Pam is like super friendly to the press, like wanted to be on everybody's show. And was like a little too comfortable as how they describe her. There was a feeling that she actually enjoyed the attention she was getting being the widow on TV. Yeah, Bill Spencer. Okay, that guy can take several goddamn seats. Bill Spencer will happily come on this podcast. (laughs) What he does say that I was like, oh... Pam Smart, like, baby, don't do this. But she was, like, producing. She's like, wouldn't it be great if you got a shot of me looking at this? And it's like, Pam Smart. Also, her husband, it was, like, about to be their one-year anniversary. Yeah. So she's like, wouldn't it be great if you got a shot of me with a cake? She says, "Um, you know, it's been just about one year exactly since Greg and I were married. I've got the top layer of our wedding cake. Wouldn't it be good if you got a shot of me, like, looking at it? Wouldn't that be a poignant moment in your story? I'm like, What? She's attempting to produce the story that I'm working on. People are starting to notice that she's like very comfortable in front of the camera and like wanting of the attention. And She's like a young, pretty widow. And again, like when someone is attractive, then it's like everyone needs to pay more attention. That's Don't just where I we live. It. That's my life. You guys, I just want to live when I walk down the street, please. <laughs> just you can say hi, but really I have a life. So she really loved. And the thing from the beginning she was very like, oh, are there cameras here? Do you guys want to talk to me about my dead husband? So it was immediately the cameras were everywhere and didn't right, let up. Yeah. And she was not saying no to any interview. So it's like, it just became on television constantly. Um, I just want to, what's that stupid, horrible, take several seats reporter? Bill Spencer. The first right? thing he says about her, he's like, oh, she looks hot. She's dressed beautifully. Full on makeup. She looks hot. You don't get to talk about her like that. Again, everyone being described by their physical attributes. Yeah, you you can't fault her for like for looking like that and then comment on the fact that you liked it. Yeah. And what he's accusing her of, he does all the time. He'll go on every interview. He'll talk to anybody. Exactly. And then he's like, you know what? And he even says, he's like, I was on Geraldo. I was on Sally Jesse. I was on the... Bill Spencer was, uh, was pretty dogged through this whole thing. He got quite a bit of publicity for himself as well and 
He ended up uh, on Phil Donahue's show. The Geraldo Show. Sally Jesse Raphael. Hard copy, inside edition. Um, everybody wants to talk to me uh, because I've been leading the coverage in this case. He has the audacity to sit on a talk show panel with Pamela Smart's mother. Mother! Who's not having it at. Good thing he was sitting. Yeah, exactly. She would have said, why don't you take a seat, <laughs> you prick. Now, the police have a recording that Cecilia, this 16-year-old confidant, made. She wore a, a wireless mic, a hidden microphone. Pamela told this 16-year-old girl many incriminating things. Did you hear the tape, Mr. Spencer? The attorney general... Did you hear it? No, of course not. And I you've didn't. made a judgment on my daughter based I... on not hearing that tape. So if you're from another planet or you were born in the last 30 years and you don't know anything about this crime, mm-hmm. the big bombshell is that Pam in like a phone interview drops that like she didn't want to let on that she had any connection with these boys right. because she's been sleeping with Billy Flynn. Right. Greg's father's calling me on the phone. My friends are calling me. My family's asking me. Who is this person? Why in the world would this person murder Greg? And we're all grieving, okay, over the fact that Greg is dead. And I'm supposed to say, well, by the way, everybody, I had sex with this person. And then there's this anonymous phone call. May 14th, there's this anonymous tip where she's like, where someone calls and is just like, she's been sleeping with one of them. She had a plan to kill her husband. Right. Detective Pelletier. So a young man killed a couple weeks ago. Right. In his home. And she openly acknowledges that she has had a sexual relationship with Billy Flynn. Her her side of the story is around Christmas, less than a year of marriage, her husband has a one night stand. So she's feeling really bad about herself. 17 year old Billy Flynn is the only person who can make her feel good about herself. They have an eight week long relationship. Right. She says sexual relationship. What kind of emotional relationship are you having with a 17 year old? It's purely sexual. <laughs> Let me be very clear. very emotional when I was <laughs> Oh. All of my emotions All the were Indigo available. Girls. All the Indigo Girls albums. You're like, do you guys want to talk about the it's Indigo Girls? It's just like girls? me and Pam Smart having really deep conversations about women's issues. <sighs> and like my, your hair and your feelings. Exactly. And just, yeah. So she doesn't want to admit that because it's not a good look. I knew it was wrong. Like in my head I was saying, no, this is wrong. But inside my heart, I I liked him. Never felt comfortable in it. So after like about eight weeks, I ended the relationship. I certainly didn't think that he was going to go kill my husband. So her account of that night is that she had been out late because she had to go to a school board meeting. She comes home around 10, noticed that the the condo door was uh, open a little bit. She turned on the light and saw Greg. Right, and the house is ransacked. And was it a a robbery? Was it a drug deal gone wrong? All the usual, was it this, was it that situation? So at this point, we have to acknowledge there's like one other person who is not a part of the three boys. There's a girl that that has like a friend relationship with Pam Smart. Cecilia Pierce. (laughs) Nobody really knew about the relationship. I was embarrassed about it. And the only other person that knew it was Cecilia Pierce. Okay, girl, tell us everything about Cecilia. Well, Cecilia is a teenager (laughs) and has an interesting relationship with this older authority figure. Yeah. Which... Pam Smart. Pam Smart, which is kind of a theme. Does it make her a murderer? Maybe not, but she did have inappropriate relationships with her student or kids younger than her. Yes. But it's like she was 22, first of all, which yeah. is not that big of a difference, really. Legally, no, I agree. it is. I agree. I agree. 22 and 17, like. Right. But Cecilia, 
wears a wire and now starts <laughs> like talking to Pam about. So we're like we're after the murder and and right. So the the Cecilia like is a, uh, the police come to Cecilia and they're like you need to wear a wire now. I because it's like 1989. I have this image of the like them like duct taping like a double cassette boombox to right. her and like pressing play and record at the same time. Right. On like a Maxell cassette tape. And she's wearing like a big sweatshirt, but you can see the corners <laughs> out where it's just like, hey, what's that? Nothing. I had a big lunch. Don't worry. Don't don't worry about that <laughs> sound. That's not a tape recording at all. Yeah, what do you, how do you do that in 1990? Honestly, that's ridiculous. But she did it. Um, and the tapes are not not the best. You a guys. couple things about the tapes. So they don't play the tapes really until the very end of the documentary. I was wondering if they were going to play them at all. Yeah. We'll get there. But I think that this whole trial really hinged on these tapes because they claim to show Pam basically basically acknowledging that she was knew about it, put them up to it, you know, put the boys up to the murder. I don't think the tapes show that. When you hear the actual tapes, they are very inaudible. You can't understand. Shockingly, they're bad quality. Right. For 1990, (laughs) boombox under a sweatshirt. Shockingly, you can't make it all out. And then the cops are like, well, we got an enhancer. Right. We don't see the enhancer. We don't know anything no, about who this they, enhancer. What the, right. Even one of the other, someone for the defense is like, who has credentials of God knows what? Right. Like The person who prepared the transcript, by the way, there's qualifications to do so, I don't know. In most cases, you would want a qualified audiologist to do this. But, but, but this stenographer tried to figure out what was said. Literally, in the transcript, every other thing is inaudible. It's like, she said, killed, inaudible, 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 me, inaudible, inaudible, inaudible. And conveniently, and there's this whole section on the transcripts, and it'll say, inaudible, 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 and then here comes this line out of nowhere or something. And it's like, wait a minute. You know, well, what was all the inaudible stuff? Those transcripts become taken as gospel and then treated as if they were the tapes. So there's one other thing that happens with Cecilia, which is that she has this like major transformation where she goes from like completely awkward, stammering, sort of unattractive, sort of frumpy girl. Mm-hmm. And then somebody says like, she was in the middle of this media storm, this media hurricane that was the Pam Smart case. It was the most paid attention to thing in the world at the time. Yeah. And Cecilia is, the, is the, at the center of it. And so she's doing these interviews and... And it's really, it's the first time famous for being famous, really. It's one of those things. And just like Pam Smart, just like Bill Spencer, will do every goddamn interview that comes her way. Tonight on Hard Copy, One Girl's Secret. Cecilia Pierce was wired for murder. She said that she was in love with Bill and she had a choice. She could either divorce Greg or kill him. And every time her hair's a little bit nicer. And she gets better at it. Yeah. And she's more like Pam. They even say like Pam gets guiltier and guiltier yes, the more she goes on. Exactly. At first, she didn't want to believe Pam's guilt. And over the next year, she went on television again and again and again and again proclaiming Pam's guilt. And then we find out because I'm like, what on earth are they giving the 16 year old girl like why is she even involved why are they like let's put a wire on that one there's something else going on here oh what is it a goddamn movie deal they optioned the rights to her life story she's 16 years old her life story once upon a time productions as i have here is the life story option and purchase agreement 
Cecilia Pierce signed this contract for a movie deal and sells her story. This is dated September 14th, 1990. And how much did they, did they buy it for? $100,000. You know what we're going to do right now? What? We're going to look up how much $100,000 Oh, I love this game. In 2017 money compared to 1990. I do this all the time. Okay, hang on. It's... $200,358.51. As a 16-year-old? I would As turn, me right now, actually. I would turn on my mother for $200,000. <laughs> Somebody write me a check. My mom did it. Whatever, whatever crime you got. <laughs> she did it. We meet one other person, Joyce Maynard, author of To Die For. Who's who, super cash. It was very much the fact of having seen her on television before in this other role, the grieving widow role. Very Pretty, young, blonde, former cheerleader, you know, the kind of girl that I would have really been hated but secretly envied, you know. And the recognition that, in fact, it was rotten, something very ugly behind it that bore no relationship to the image in front. I also think that she gets a bad rap in this because she honestly sees, like, an interesting story and an interesting woman. And she's like, I'm going to write a novel about this. She did say... The cheerleader with the handcuffs on. That's when I knew I was writing a novel. I picked up the newspaper and there she was on the cover, I think with handcuffs on this, you know, the cheerleader with handcuffs on. And that's when I knew I had decided I'm going to write a novel. I think that Joyce Maynard, her her whole what she serves in this documentary is to is to show us just like how a much of a sensation this story from this little New Hampshire town became, and how it became not about justice. It became not necessarily about getting the getting the person and people who committed this crime, um, and and sort of just about the sensationalism of it. And everybody wants to be famous. Yeah, and so she wrote to die for the book, which turned into the Nicole Kidman movie. And she's like, I got so lucky. And it's like, girl, settle down just a little bit, maybe right. just sit quietly. She oh, sit quietly, please, <laughs> yeah. with all like casual with her knees up, like okay. <laughs> um, this is kind of the setup: is that we see this is the trial that we all know, right? Mm-hmm. We think we know what happened to Pam Smart. We think that she. You know, had an affair with this young boy. Yeah. Convinced him to kill her husband. Has a trial. Goes to jail. And the same trope. The Black Widow. The femme fatale. The same thing that we've seen a million times. Yeah. And it's really hard to see that. Because you somebody says in the movie that, like, you decide who this character is and then you try to find the evidence to support it. Right. Well, especially when Bill Spencer and WMUR released a documentary about basically telling, like, Bill's Bill Spencer's narrative and his right. opinions before the jury Two was days. picked. Two days before the jury was picked. WMUR in New Hampshire produced a movie called The Anatomy of a Murder. And that movie detailed what William Spencer thought resulting in the murder of Gregory Smart. We publicize the heck out of it, the full-page ads in uh, the New Hampshire newspapers. Ratings are huge. This was broadcast two days before the jurors were selected. Half of the 147 prospective jurors summoned today said they had heard about the case, so they were excused. In the afternoon, 150. So imagine being in that town, and then like every like the decisions have already been made for you. You cannot possibly get a fair trial. There's it's there's no, and I think that's what the documentary is about more than her guilt or innocence. It's did she get a fair trial, and right. it's of course she didn't. And Pam Smart is saying now we get to modern day Pam Smart, where she's like, I can't get my case back into court because everybody thinks they know the story in about two weeks i'm gonna have literally spent half of my life in prison i have been trying to get back into court and to this day i'm left to try to chip away at this avalanche of negative image that hurts me let's go through what pam has to say about what is different than what we think we know yeah first of all 
She wasn't a teacher. I was never a teacher. I was the director of media services for 11 schools, one of which was the high school, which Bill Flynn and his friends attended. First thing to talk about is Juror 13. What did Juror 13 do? She recorded tapes, like audio diaries, of her thoughts on what she saw that day in the courtroom and her opinions on the, the guilt or innocence or validity of what all these people were saying. And these tapes, I want to cool. hear every yeah. minute of them. Today was the first day of the Pamela trial. And I'm not supposed to be talking about anybody, so I'm making a tape. We're seeing her see Pam Smart and this trial. She's saying that like the first day of, of the trial, the, they load the entire jury into a bus. They go to Pam and Greg Smart's condo mm-hmm. and they walk into the condo like in, in like shifts to see it. And she sees Pam Smart for the first time. Um, about Pamela Smart, what did I feel about her today? She looked tiny, troubled. That's what happens. It becomes a larger than life persona. Mm-hmm. that the media has created. So then to see this this character or caricature, really, and then to be like in this woman's home and seeing her yeah. and she's small, it's kind of like, oh shit, this is a real human and a real thing. Right. I just can't even imagine what she must be feeling. The one thing that the juror, juror 13 says at one point, which I just laughed so hard because it's so New England. What? She said, um, we were sitting in the chairs and they were wicked terrible. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> Pretty top sitting in that court. I have a wicked back. That chair I'm sitting in is terrible, terrible, terrible. Wicked terrible. Wicked terrible. All right. Here, here are the other things that we learned right away. Number one, the the boys, Billy and the, the other two boys that were there that night, they were all put in jail together, which apparently is unusual, Dory. Of course. What is this, the first time everyone, anyone had was in prison <laughs> in New Hampshire? Like, why are you putting these kids together that so they can talk and conspire? That's insane. I've been doing this for 30 years, and in every single case other than one, there was an effort on the part of the prosecutors, whether a co-defendants and, and people that will be telling the same story and they're incarcerated, is an effort to keep them apart. I don't understand the decision to have those boys housed in the same place and able to talk to each other. And also, we see Billy on the stand. He's sobbing. Yeah. He's like so remorseful. Mm-hmm. Um, we meet one of his cellmates who has an opinion about that. Okay, well, they were doing a whole lot of drugs. (laughs) He says, we need a cellmate who says they were banging lines before going to trial. It's so New England. Yeah, banging Banging lines. lines. Banging lines. I caught him in the morning. Him and Pete doing lines on the desk in the room. I caught him one morning. I opened up the door and they were banging lines before they were going to testify. And he goes, it makes me more emotional. He goes, it makes me more emotional on the stand. He said, don't you notice? Don't you notice? Don't you notice? Also, I feel like this guy gets a little more screen time than he might because he's just like kind of hilarious. Because he's perfect. <laughs> so they were doing morphine and... Right. and Cocaine and vi- Xanax and... We were doing all everything. We were doing especially marijuana, morphine, Valiums, and the cocaine, of course. And then he lists every single name for marijuana. <laughs> and we would all sit around, you know, we'd smoke a bone in the cell, a joint, a reefer, a weed... Marijuana, whatever you want to call it. We find out how they're getting the drugs, by the way, into the prison. A Nerf ball. (laughs) Different every day, a different color Nerf ball would just go flying over the barbed wire and landing into the prison. And then he'd be like, oh, thanks. My drugs are here. And he's like, and he's like, the guards were none the wiser. They had no idea. I had one way where I threw a Nerf football, had someone throw a Nerf football over the fence. And inside the Nerf football would be the drugs. The funny thing was, 
that uh, there would be a different color Nerf football out there every day and the cops wouldn't even realize it. But also, like, we hear that Billy is also bragging about, like, his performance Did on those stands. you see my performance? Yeah. I cried really hard and thanks to the cocaine. Thanks one of the things fall. that sort of lends itself to the idea that he isn't, that Billy's not necessarily telling the truth, Billy claims to have been the guy that did the actual shooting. Mm-hmm. The trigger man. Right. And that he had Greg down on his knees, execution style, and kills him that way. But when the actual expert takes the stand, mm-hmm. we find out that he wasn't shot that way, that he was actually shot from the front. The bullet passed downward and backward from front to back at about a 45 degree angle. So, like, we learn in that moment, and it was a gasp moment for me because I would not have remembered this, that these boys are not telling the truth. Yeah, they decided that Billy was going to take the fall for it. Yeah. But everything he said was bullshit. Yeah. I think that they were in an agreement that uh, Flynn would take the blame for the killing no matter what took place. The way that I saw the case was that having the lover of Pam Smart actually do the job gave it more of an impact statement than what I believed was true, and that was that Pete did the job when they got in the house when probably Flynn chickened out. And Pete executed him. All of that stuff gives credence to the idea that Pam is maybe telling the truth. That she didn't know, you know? The other crazy thing is that Pam Smart takes the stand. Mm -hmm. Now, if that were to happen in a modern day trial, it'd be all... I mean, it'd be the only thing anybody talks about. Anybody who likes true crime knows that the defendant in a murder trial almost never takes the stand. OJ didn't do it. OJ didn't take it. Adnan Syed didn't do it. Nobody did. And in the Adnan Syed case, it was a big deal because we found out after the fact that the jury really wanted to hear from him. Yeah. In almost every case, they want to hear from that person. Of course. And she gets up on the stand and I don't think she does a great job. No. You know, that that to me was crazy. The jury will determine what's the truth, won't they? They certainly will. Are you afraid that they're going to decide after themselves? I think the jury's going to believe what the truth is. Okay. I, so, I believe in the jury system. Jump cut to Pam in a story in a storytelling workshop in jail. Right. I will forever be haunted by the knowledge that had I never become involved with Bill, then Greg would still be alive today. Even though I didn't pull the trigger, my bad choices helped load the gun. You know, and the thing is, seeing that is is always a little sad to me. Like, yeah, in these workshops of these women, and you never know what their story is, and they are trying to, and, the, and at least in that moment, trying to better themselves. Yeah, and yeah, in a yeah, storytelling yeah, totally. workshop, and they're trying to communicate, and maybe they're not always good communicators, which is probably why they're there. Maybe they did something, whatever. Um, but this one fellow inmate is like, girl. <laughs> Be real with yourself. Like, yeah. why he? She was like, "Why is it so hard for you to say all this?" You were so uncomfortable in exposing that piece. You know, you said it, you showed it, you put the book up, and I was wondering, is it because you're afraid that we won't see you for who you are? That we'll be like everybody else, like the media has portrayed you. Like you said, you know, this cold-hearted person. Who is the real Pam Smart? But she thinks. Yeah. Again, there's a camera on her. So I don't like I understand what she's saying, but she's like, no, like I'm scared to be honest and vulnerable because tomorrow the newspaper is going to say Pam Smart says she loaded the gun. Right. What was the thing about with the with with that lady inmate? So she said that a big cliche on the outside is that like, of course, everyone inside in, in prison claims they didn't do it. Everyone says they didn't do it. And she's like, no. With the exception of three women, that's out of thousands and thousands out of the eight years that I served, I've only heard three women say that they didn't do it. So far, two out of three of those women have been proven innocent and released. The third and last one is Pamela Smart. 
you know, what, what it's coming down to is just the idea that Pam Smart didn't get a fair trial. And everybody who, if you think you know about the Pam Smart case, and I would have said that I did, she's the lady that had that hot young kid kill her husband. She may not, like, I honestly, at one point I was like, did Pam Smart not do this? Did she not conspire to have... Did she really yeah. not know? Like, did she not really have anything to do with this? Well, th- I think this is a good time to go back to the tapes. Yeah. Because there were some bad decisions on Pam's part. Yes. One, not being totally open with the investigator. She had plenty of time to say, hey, by the way, I'm banging this kid. Yeah. And she didn't. Yeah. Because it was a bad look. But her lawyer... This is where I was like, even in my notes, all in caps, I was like, I'm sorry, what? And I'm holding my temples now <laughs> thinking about it. So Pam's lawyer, this is modern day Pam telling the story. Pam's lawyer said, do not talk to Cecilia. Cecilia's wearing a wire. Do not speak to her. And what did Pam do? Hung up the phone, immediately called (laughs) Cecilia. I called my lawyer and he said, "Uh, whatever you do, don't talk to Cecilia Pierce. She's going to be wired. And I said, okay. And I hung up the phone and I called her. That's the truth. Exactly what happened. Now, here's the part, though, that I feel like, granted, Pam has had years to concoct a story, to come up with what she's going to say. You know, some of the police even think that she has convinced herself that she had nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's true. But Pam, again, said that, you know, she's like, I was on no sleep. I hadn't slept in days. I was on, you know, I was on antidepressants. And I just wanted information. I felt like if I called Cecilia, like he's saying, don't call Cecilia. That means Cecilia has information. If I call Cecilia and play along, she's going to tell me stuff that I need to know about my dead husband. Makes sense to me. I really thought, I really thought that they had the wrong person, that they found out about this relationship and they jumped to this conclusion because there was no evidence so to speak, that was coming out through the uh, police telling me. My main thing at that time was trying to figure out, did he really do this? Because I guess I just, in my heart, I wanted it so not to be true. I, I wanted anybody anywhere to give me any information that I could to help get the answer to this one question of, did he really do this? I told Greg's best friend, actually. What she said to me was, if, I wonder if I act like I know something about this, if they'll say something to me. What did, did you respond to that? Yeah. What did you tell her? I told her not to be a, an idiot, but I used a different word. Don't be an asshole. So the, the first trial ends, obviously, with Pam getting convicted. Life without parole. And my God, she just stands there in front of the judge, like doesn't move or blank. Yeah. Has the jury reached a verdict on each of the three offenses charged? Yes, we have. On case number 90-1371, which charges a defendant with a crime of accomplice to first-degree murder, how would say is the defendant guilty or not guilty of the offense charged? And even Juror 13, this is when Juror 13 says, I would have hung the shit out of that trial if I knew what the sentence was going to be. And so this is important. They didn't know that that she was going to get... Somebody says Charles Manson doesn't have that sentence. I know. He has been up for parole like a zillion times with his swastika in his forehead acting crazy. And this is where Juror 13 says, if I had known that, I would have hung the jury. Life with no parole, she, you know, that's forever. That's not fair. And, you know, I really believe that I would have hung that jury because I was damn close to doing it anyway had I known what this sentence was going to be. Even what she was being accused of, it wasn't murder. Right. That's the thing. The boys admitted to doing it. She wasn't even being tried for murder. Right. The great injustice to me is that she's in jail forever 
and the kids who actually perpetrated the crime will get out of jail. By sort of any measure, that's not fair. But that's, again, the way the system works. So the system did what the system does. I gotta say, like, this really made me wonder. You know, like, mm-hmm. I really thought I knew everything. I really would have been like, yeah, Pam Smart's got that hot kid to kill her husband. I also, upon looking at the picture of Billy Flynn, I might have reconsidered the definition sure, of the word hot. that hair is. Come right. On. And B, I would also say, like, I honestly right now feel like if nothing else, the evidence should be looked at again. A hundred percent. But it's like, how how do we do this case justice now? Yeah. Is it, can we? Right. Right. I mean, I think that like if you did the if you did the case in a town that wasn't the town where it happened somewhere else in New Hampshire. I mean, that was the thing they tried to do in the beginning. They were saying, like, we wanted to do this in a town that wasn't besieged with Boston media because Boston has all the major network affiliates. And why did the judge want to get rid of the case? The judge didn't want to do it because it was the biggest it was going to be the biggest case of his career. And he wanted Clint Eastwood to play him in the movie. Oh, my God. And there were like four different people of the the lawyers who were just like, oh, no, that's totally common knowledge. He is <laughs> yet to deny it. That's a true statement. Right. Like, put that on the record. He really wanted Clint Eastwood to play him in the movie. Right. Right, totally. Get a grip. Why, that he should be disbarred. That's horrible. I know. I'm not sure if I put this in, but the judge said in the trial that he hoped Clint Eastwood would play him in the movie. It was reported reliably and has never been denied by Judge Ray. It's funny because I look back at the at the cases that we've done, right? I'm like, Johnny Gosh was dead in an hour. No no child sex ring. I mean, I'm not sitting to do it. Like, I can make a judgment right away. and be. I, I'm just like not a conspiracy theorist. Like, Kurt Cobain killed himself. I look at this and I'm like, oh my God, Pam Smart didn't do it. Like I, that's, and it's counterintuitive because I'm usually like, what's the Alchem's razor where like the thing that makes sense is the thing that happened. Right. And it makes sense that Pam Smart would have done this, but I kind of feel like she didn't. Well, here's the thing. You know that I'm a big evidence person, right? We did not get into evidence at all. Mm -hmm. No forensics except for the, where the gunshot was. Yeah. But like, I need more of that to be able to make a decision. I think what you have there is the Cecilia tapes. If I'm not saying that they prove her innocence, I'm the juror 13 says at one point, it wasn't up to Pam to prove her innocence. Mm -hmm. It was up to the state to prove her guilt. And I think that hinges on the tapes. And I think that we can prove they're not an accurate representation of what was actually said. And I think that there's a lot of questions. I really could not agree more. Fill us in on where we are. Every one, every, all the boys, they're out of prison. Even Billy? Because at the end of the movie, it says like Billy will be up for parole in 2015. There's this awesome thing called Google. <laughs> and I looked it up. So Raymond Fowler, out in 2003. Vance Latamy, 2005, out. Billy Flynn and Pete Randall, at the end, it says eligible for parole in 2015. They're out. Wow. Pamela Smart, she will not be released or eligible for parole without authorization from the governor of New Hampshire. It says her um, parole date is 99-99-99. When you see that and all these kids are out and you're just like, what, what? What did they do? What did the justice system do? Now, if she's a master manipulator and she orchestrated this, then great, she deserves that. Right. But if there's a chance that she didn't, it all needs to be looked at again. I feel like there's still a good amount of reasonable doubt. Yeah. Which is, that should not be. Yeah. Um, you guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode. We're getting so close to our goal of 200 uh, 
Apple, what are, what are Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Excuse you. Slash iTunes reviews. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows it as iTunes. Everyone's like, exactly. what is Apple Podcasts? It's like Ira Glass as Apple Podcasts, so we all have to. Uh, so um, we've never done this. Jillian, what is your Twitter handle? Oh, hi. I'm at Jillian with a G. Sp- all spelled out. Totally. G- and G- I'm... Patrick Hines, which is Patrick and then H-I-N for Nancy, D for David, S for Sam. Follow us, you guys. You've done this before. Yeah, once or twice. Ah, <laughs> uh, girl, what are we doing next time? A movie that really scares me, yeah. Cropsy. It's perfect for the fall. For some reason, I associate this documentary with the fall. Because the poster is like a bunch of beautiful fall leaves totally. in this horrible, <laughs> abandoned mental institution or whatever. That's and like, Geraldo's got some shit to say about Geraldo it. Geraldo has shit to say about everything, and I have shit to say about Geraldo. <laughs> I'm scared. This movie scares me. I remember I seeing it. I remember watching it for the first time. I was like, lock the doors. Like, is there anyone in the closet <laughs> under the bed? I'm terrified, but like, let's do it. I'm excited. All right. So here's the promo for Cropsy. And stay tuned after for outtakes from this episode. You guys, there are so <laughs> many. So many. <laughs> We're going to have to do like outtakes of the outtakes. Growing up on Staten Island, Barbara and I had often heard the legend of Cropsy. You're supposed to have a hook and axe with a knife about this big. Cropsy was the escaped mental patient who lived in the tunnels beneath the old abandoned Willowbrook Mental Institution who would come out late at night, snatch children off the streets. I have never, I would have never guessed there were the the amount of weirdos living on Staten Island. There might be somebody on your block. There might be somebody you work with. You know, here's this guy going around picking off these kids. I can imagine how other parents, even if your kid's gone for an hour, I can imagine how they must feel. You know, that's probably the, one of the last things that you ever think about, that somebody would take your daughter. It seemed like everywhere I went, there were people out in the woods looking for that little girl. It's no question if we were going to find her. We definitely were going to find her. She thinks we're picking at dead children's bones. We just want closure on this, that's all. It's scary because we have a boogeyman living on Staten Island all those years. That image forced a lot of people to say, that is the killer. There's no reason for him to exist anywhere else, you know, other than jail. We had the same questions that you're asking me. Why did he do this? What set him off? It's sort of like putting a puzzle together. You know, he likes to be the center of attention, the keeper of the secrets. So I think it'd be great if you could speak for your What if we just do audio? safety, I will not go on. Do you think they're all around us? Yeah. Oh my God. I think he's possessed. I really think that he is demonized and possessed. Was Remember it? when Amy the Amy Fisher thing happened and they had three movies that came out on the same night? I sure do. Ava Save a Lot, aka Alyssa Milano, <laughs> Drew Barrymore, and like some unknown girl. Oh my god. Did you see also on Twitter this week that um Scott Bayo blocked Alyssa Milano Alyssa, and she tweeted it? Here's the thing. You guys just try fucking with Alyssa Milano. She doesn't have time for anybody's bullshit. I love Alyssa Milano and so much. She is like so talk about loud and proud. She's just like, I don't have time for bullshit, everybody. No. That was the first thing. I was obsessed with the movie because I loved Helen Hunt. Because Oh, and I loved Helen Hunt because Helen Hunt was in Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Did you see that movie? Of course. With Sarah Jessica Parker? Yes. Obsessed. Yeah. yeah. I, slow, slow, <laughs> quick, quick, slow. <laughs> slow, slow, <laughs> quick, quick, slow. I was obsessed with that movie. Oh, my. When I, when I heard that with, in the documentary they said that she was 22, I screamed. I was like, why don't you? She looks like she's 50 at, like, at 22. You know what? Being a Van Halen groupie <laughs> will age a person. <laughs> and then Billy Flynn. 
when Billy takes his hand. <laughs> <laughs> All I can think about every time somebody says his name is um, from the Chicago. You guys, Billy Flynn is a character in the musical Chicago. He's the sleazy lawyer. Right. And all I can think about is in the movie when, um, who's the hot black guy married to Adina Menzel? Tay Diggs. When Tay Not Diggs married goes, anymore. Not anymore. He goes, a five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> <Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum, laughs> I, oh my God. And then I also kept thinking of, because Billy Flynn to like get them off. Sorry, this is totally outtake uh, territory. But he's like, and now a tap dance. And he like does his little totally like yeah. lawyer so- move. Also, every time you keep saying she hadn't slept, that's the beginning of say no to this. I hadn't slept in a week. I was weak. I was awake. You never seen a basset off in more need of a break. And I just think it's worth saying the bikini photos were not like she wasn't taking sexy photos. She was trying to get into a bikini contest, which is like such a Van Halen groupie thing to do. But like, look, being a Van Halen groupie in 1989 makes you a lot of things. Should you go to prison without chance of parole for it? No. Um, I would I would like it to go to a jury. <laughs>